0: Joshua chapter 20, Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. In chapter 20, we come to... Joshua's instruction really concerning the cities of refuge. And one of the interesting things about this is that this is the fourth time that God has addressed the cities of refuge in his word. And really kind of relatively short space from Genesis to this point in time. There's something about these cities of refuge that, and what they communicate that is very, very important to him. The Lord thus also spoke to Joshua, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, Appoint for yourself cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the slayer who kills a man accidentally or unintentionally may flee there, and they shall be your refuge from the avenger of blood. And when he flees to one of these cities and stands at the entrance of the gate of the city, and declares his case in the hearing of the elders of that city of refuge, they shall take him into the city as one of them and give him a place that he may dwell among them, assuming the death uh, was accidental. Then if the avenger of blood pursues the man to that city, they shall not deliver the slayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unintentionally but did not hate him beforehand. There was no premeditation no murder. And he shall dwell in that city until he stands before the congregation for judgment, to hear his case, and until the death of the one who is high priest in those days, then the slayer may return and come back to his own city and his own house, to the city from which he fled. I think that surely this instruction related to the cities of refuge really speaks to us of, of God's um, concern uh, for th- the fact that there would not be any shedding needlessly of of innocent blood and his concern for the sanctity of, of human life in those days they didn't have uh, law enforcement like we have it sheriff's departments, police departments highway patrol, we've got lots of layers of law enforcement in this culture in those days in kind of the uh, beginning stages there in Israel, uh, those things weren't in place. There wasn't a National Guard, there wasn't an army, there wasn't any of these things. And so there was this whole system of the avenging of blood that, that kind of kept law and order. And if uh, you killed someone in my family, it was a known accepted responsibility in the ancient world that the oldest male blood relative of the person that had been killed now had a responsibility to hunt down the killer of their family member and then also slay them. And uh, so that was the practice, and that practice is actually uh, engaged in in a few places around the world even to this day. So that's what would, would happen. One of the flaws in the system is that when someone would be killed, let's say somebody killed someone in my family and I was the avenger of blood, there was the danger, because when you killed somebody or you sinned against someone, you sinned against a family in those days, not just against an individual. So if, if somebody was killed in my family, the problem is, is I might be a hothead. And I'm not going to determine whether the death was accidental Uh, or it was a premeditated murder. I'm just going to go after the person who's done it, and I'm going to kill them. And that's what the temptation would be. God comes along and He says, no, this is how I want it for my people. The practice is good as far as it goes in kind of a a rudimentary civilization or culture. But I don't like this part of it. So I want to make sure that in this... Uh, kinsman redeemer or this uh, redeemer of of blood that person is to differentiate between whether the death occurred accidentally manslaughter something like that or whether it was premeditated murder if it was premeditated murder the kinsman redeemer or the, uh, the family member was free then to execute the person or to bring him to justice according to the law of Moses the elders of Israel If the person, as the example is given in the Law of Moses, he's out there chopping down a tree and the axe head flies off, dangerous situation, and it hits somebody accidentally and they die, there's no, you know, that's not murder, it's manslaughter. And, and so there needed to be a place where someone could flee so that cooler heads would prevail and then uh, already innocent blood has been accidentally shed. God didn't want uh, innocent blood to be de- deliberately shed by this uh, uh, revenge kind of, of killing. And so the Lord set this thing in place so that you didn't end up within the the children of Israel and the tribes of Israel, the, the old you know, Hatfield and McCoy's thing where somebody killed somebody and then somebody killed and somebody killed and now you've got generations and hundreds of years of bad blood. That's not a way that God wanted His family operating in the world and so He set uh, all of this up. The refuge was provided in, in the case of manslaughter or accidental death. Now the cities that were... Uh, appointed are, are interesting. He begins to give them to us in verse seven, and in the three other places, what makes this place unique the three other places that this is spoken about he gives details related to the cities of refuge, but he doesn 't identify the cities. So here, for the first time, he names the cities where they are to be located. Three cities were to be located on the east side of the Jordan where the two and a half tribes uh, were going to settle. And then three uh, cities of refuge were going to be uh, located in Canaan proper, uh, the promised land. And they were spaced by the Lord throughout the land in such a way that if you accidentally killed someone, you were no more than a day's run uh, to a a city of refuge. And you would be running. (laughs) So you before the other family would find out you 'd have a head start on it, and you' begin to make your way to that city. So they appointed uh, Kadesh in Galilee in the mountains of Naphtali, Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim, and Kirjath Arba, which is Hebron, and the mountains of Judah. So those were the three in the promised land. On the east side of the Jordan, by Jericho eastward, they assigned Bezer in the wilderness on the plain from the tribe of Reuben, Ramoth in Gilead from the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan from the tribe of... Of Manasseh. And so all of these things, as we've seen in the past, cities of refuge, a beautiful picture of the Lord. Jesus spoke to the religious leaders of his day, and he said, You search the scriptures, for in them uh, you think you have everlasting life. But these are they which testify of me. The entire Bible testifies to Jesus. One day when we get into heaven, maybe there will be some Bible studies on the uh, Law and the Prophets in the Old Testament that will help us to see how all of it was about Christ. Do you remember when Jesus was resurrected from the dead and He talked and walked with those uh, disciples? Uh, and and, uh, as they were uh, making their way along the road and when they finally got to their destination and then they realized that it was Jesus on the road to Emmaus and and they realized it was Jesus and then Jesus was gone they said, didn't our hearts burn within us as He opened up the Scriptures? I can't wait to understand fully how all of these things speak of Christ. He's the highest theme. He's the greatest theme for anything in the world and even for the word of god and so this these cities of refuge are a type of the kind of refuge that we find in jesus and so here is just as god provided a divinely provided a place of salvation for the innocent jesus is a place of salvation a refuge for us to run to but just as the book of hebrews says that jesus is greater than any picture of him in the Old Testament, Jesus is better in this regard. I would, I would love Je- Jesus, but I would have to love Him from a distance if He only provided refuge for the innocent. <laughs> it was too late for me. But Jesus provides a refuge for those that are both innocent those, and those that are, are guilty. And so the, the salvation that He provides uh, for us that Jesus is also a city of refuge in the sense that those cities were open up to everyone, access to everyone, anyone and everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, and salvation is open up to anyone in the world. Another parallel between Jesus and the cities of refuge is that they were very well known. Everybody knew the city of refuge, and just as God has made the gospel known to the world, the way of salvation that's found, In His Son. Now, what is fascinating here for us, though, in this vein, is that for the first time we are given the cities in Scripture, and each one of these cities has a beautiful meaning to the name, and again, the the, a meaning that reaches its highest high in Christ, and it describes to us what sinners can expect to find Jesus to be when they run to Him for refuge. And the city Kadesh means holiness or righteousness. Wasn't that nice to find when we came to Jesus? Shechem means shoulder or strength. We found strength when we came to Him. Kirjath Arba became known as Hebron, and Hebron means fellowship. Not only did we find a refuge in Him, but there was a relationship attached to that refuge. Bezer speaks of fortress or speaks of safety. Ramoth speaks of heights or uplifting. Golan speaks of happiness. And these are all the things that speak of what a sinner finds when we run to Christ. And all of us found that as we did run to him. It's a beautiful picture, another beautiful picture of Christ. Then in chapter 21, Then the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites came near to Eleazar the priest, to Joshua the son of Nun, and to the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the children of Israel. And they spoke to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, saying, The Lord commanded through Moses to give us cities to dwell in with their common lands for our livestock. And so, again, we've got these individuals, and we've got these groups of people. Now as is the, is the land has been conquered, now it's being uh, divided properly uh, among the people. And so the Levites come to Joshua, they remind him of Moses' promise that they would have, instead of uh, uh, inheriting a set block of land like the other tribes did in in the land, that they would receive a, a series of 48 cities that would be spread out through the land, uh, for them to live in a, a kind of a zone around those cities that was big enough for them to raise a small amount of crops and also livestock as they speak about here. Not enough land to tempt them to be pulled away from their service to the Lord, but enough land to provide a little bit for their family. And so they, re- they request those cities. Again, it's interesting with the Levites... They were their whole lives were to be given over to the service of the Lord. And so they became the experts in the Word of God. They knew the things of God in the ways that other people didn't. Remember, there weren't printing presses and everybody didn't have a Bible in there uh... in their home and so these were kind of the experts on the law these were the people that got to handle the things of god and uh, closely and and knew the mind of god and the ways of god better than the average person so god didn't want them all clustered in like one big city in israel he wanted that influence that they had spread throughout the city And uh, uh, throughout the land. And so He put them throughout the land so that if they could be an influence in teaching the Word of God throughout the land or if somebody had a dispute in their life and they didn't know quite how God would rule on that particular situation. Um, no, it, it, is you, is we, read, we won't read all these 48 cities, but if you were to look at all of them on a map, uh, nobody is really more than about 10 miles away from one of these cities where they could then take their dispute to a Levite and then have it judged according to the Word of God. And so uh, this was... This was God's will for them, and uh, He wanted them spread out throughout the land so they would have this kind of influence throughout the land. I really believe concerning every single Christian that the Lord strategically places us in this world as as we're willing to let Him do that. And he puts us in these little places that he's, that he's put us in, in these these schools and these hospitals and in these businesses and all these different places that he's got us in life in order to have more than a Levite, to have a priest there. The Bible says that we are a kingdom of priests so that there can be someone in that environment that knows the Bible, that lives the Bible, that can speak of the Bible and that in that environment and so it's wonderful to realize I firmly believe that God has plunked me in Modesto and uh, that's the conviction of, of the heart of Karen's heart and my heart and so we believe that we're here not just because of a random looking at a map or something but that God has led us here and to be an influence here in some way and so it is with each of us that knows the Lord and it's important to have that kind of confidence spreads us out all over the community through the week and uh, so that we can have that kind of influence. Now, the tribe of Levi was divided up basically between three main families, the Kohathites, uh, the children of Gershon, the children of Merari. And uh, so these 48 cities are divided up, uh, not among the smaller clans, but among those three main families. And so in verses 3 through 5, uh, there is, uh, we're told that The families of the Kohathites, uh, they received 23 cities total. And then verse 6, the children of Gershon, they received 13. And then the children of uh, Merai uh, in verse 7, they received 12 cities total, a total of of 48. And then it goes on in verse 9 and names all of the cities that were given uh, to them. And uh, if you have a mind for deciphering all of that and telling us Uh, how that speaks of Christ, then you can let us know the next time we go through the Bible. So, verse 43 is where we end up. And so the Lord gave to Israel all the land which He had sworn to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it and dwelt in it. And the Lord gave them rest all around according to all that He had uh, sworn to their fathers. And not a man of all of their enemies stood against them, And the Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. All came to pass. Not a word failed. We can read the entirety of the Bible with that confidence His word, as we mentioned in prayer, is going to have the final say in every situation in our life. Sometimes it looks a little iffy at the moment. Sometimes we can be prone to say to God, God, it looks like this promise is going to fail in my life, and it's so sad that my life would be the one to disprove you in human history. And then somewhere out of the blue in his timing, he does something, and his word, his promise has the final say. And it's always going to be true. He's always faithful. Had a memorial service here yesterday for Fred Studi. Tim or Randy, are you here? Seated somewhere tonight? Right back there. Okay. This is Fred's sons. What? It was such a great time. What was shared? And how old was your father? He was in his nineties. Ninety-one. Ninety-one years old. When I would talk with Fred after a service, maybe out in the fellowship hall or something, he would always say two things to me. He would always, without fail, mention the faithfulness of God, how faithful God had been to him. So he went to be with the Lord last week, 91 years old. He got saved at what age? Fifteen or so? Okay, so write in it. do the math for me. I mean, that's a lot of decades of testing the word of, uh, word of God and the promises of God all the way to the end speaking of the faithfulness of the Lord and then how much He loved His sons and His family on top of that. But it was always good to talk with Him like that. And it's good to talk with older saints that look back and say, listen, what God has said has been proven true in our lives. In that, in that service, it was interesting as is that sons were sharing and uh, affectionately called uh, in, um, uh, uh, by a former pastor there, uh, they're referred to as Randy and Timmy. I hadn't known Tim Studi as Timmy. I was immediately transported into a Lassie episode. <laughs> But it was so fun to think about it. Here's somebody, here's somebody, another man who's been walking with the Lord. He shared right over here. That's why I'm pointing to it. And he, and he speaks fondly of the boys and he speaks of Tim as Timmy. I knew we were dealing with some history there. It was great. If there was like a younger name for Randy, he would have called Randy that too. But as they just shared about their father, I just thought to myself, I, I, I wish there was 1,500 young people in this room to listen to what's being shared. It's a piece of America that's disappearing. And I'm not talking about, you know, technology moving forward and building quality and roads and that kind of stuff, but just the way that life was closer to God and the way that things were done. It was very, very beautiful. And I I love that. And all his life did was, Fred's life, just testified to verse 45. I couldn't help but think about it. Not a word of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel all came to pass. Do you know that every one of us, as we just simply walk with the Lord, we will confess that at the end of our life concerning Him. Chapter 22. Then Joshua called the Reubenites, the Gadites... And half the tribe of Manasseh. And he said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. And you have obeyed my voice and all that I commanded you. And you have not left your brethren these many days up to this day, but have kept the charge of the commandment of the Lord your God. So here's the two and a half tribes that wanted the land on the east side of the Jordan River, and now. They they had made a commitment to fight with their brethren in the conquest of the land before they would be released to go back home. Joshua is now releasing them from their commitment to go back home seven years later. Tremendous sacrifice that they've made. But he said, you've obeyed. You've obeyed God. You've obeyed your commitment to your your brethren. And now that you've faithfully fulfilled that commitment, uh, you can return Home. And so he releases them, and in verse four, he releases them saying, The Lord your God has given rest to your brethren as He promised them, and now therefore return, go to your tents and to the land of your possession, which Moses the servant of the Lord gave you on the other side of the Jordan. So what do we do when we have men and women in the military, and they have performed their commitment with honor? They're given an honorable discharge, aren't they? And so Moses, or Joshua here, gives these two and a half tribes an honorable discharge discharge and the freedom to return home. But he gives them a warning in verse 5 but take careful heed to do the commandment and the law which Moses the servant of the Lord commanded you to love the Lord your God to walk in all his ways to keep his commandments to hold fast to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. And so here is Joshua. Remember, Joshua was a man of war, so he understood this. And he realized that these men had been through a very intense circumstance in life. And in that circumstance in life, they had drawn close to God, they had loved God, they had been faithful to God, but now they're returning to civilian life, they're returning to to an easier life. And so he warns them, maintain the same obedience and love and commitment and intimacy with God in this kind of easier chapter in your life that you maintained in the, in the time of, of battle. And it's a great warning. There is a great tendency in our lives when we're in the thick of the battle, and I mean we realize that we are depending upon the Lord for our very next breath, Sometimes in those circumstances it's effortless to walk close with the Lord because there are no other options. There are no margins other than maintaining that kind of a relationship with the Lord. And then what can happen is then that warfare begins to back off a little bit. The intensity of the circumstance starts to back off a little bit and then we begin to get some margins in our life a little bit so we think... And then there can be less of a drive to stay close to the Lord. And so Joshua, very, very wise as a leader, he speaks to them Don't let your guard down now. Stay close to God in all seasons in life the ones that are the intense warfare, and then the ones that are a little more daily. And so Joshua blessed them. Verse 6 He sent them away, and they went to their tents. Now, to half the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan, and to the other half of it, Joshua had given a possession among their brethren on this side of the Jordan westward. And indeed, when Joshua sent them away to their tents, he blessed them. And he spoke to them, saying, "'Return with much riches to your tents, with very much livestock. "'Go home with all of the spoil that you've received as your portion of conquering the land.'" Much livestock, stock with silver, with gold, with bronze, with iron, and with very much cloth, very much clothing. And then he gives them the exhortation: Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brethren. So he says, you're returning home with tremendous riches from the Lord. Now, when you get home, you share a portion of that, those riches, with those who have stayed back home and they've, you know, held down the fort. In, in the land that you've, you've taken possession of. And so I remember uh, reading one time concerning um, the American Army in, in World War II, that uh, — and I forget exactly what it was, but it was either seven or nine uh, soldiers or people were required to work behind the front lines in support of every single soldier that was on the front line. Uh, That's a a tremendous amount of resources dedicated to every single man that was fighting on the front line. And and that's what is required in order to support something like that properly. And and so uh, not everybody can be on the front line. There needs to be that whole support structure. And, and nobody can be on the front line what they're supposed to be without other people doing their job and doing their ministry. Paul writes about the whole thing in, in, when he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He said, what if everybody's an eye? What if everybody is an ear? What if everybody's a mouth? And, and everybody's all one thing, but it can't be all one thing. You've got an eye, you've got ears, but you've got arms, you've got legs, you've got hands, you've got feet, and the whole thing moves the body of Christ forward. And so everybody is needed. And so they had, they had done, you know, the, the hardest part of things, but they couldn't have done it without the others. And so he just says, you make sure you acknowledge the role that everybody else played in your success when you get back home. It's very, very wise to do and... Uh, And and they did it. So nobody, whether in a, a physical warfare or a spiritual warfare, can be successful alone. We acknowledge that we are successful because many other people are being faithful to what God has called them to do. And so Reuben, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh returned and departed from the children of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the country of Gilead, to the land of their possession, which they had obtained according to the word of the Lord by the hand of Moses. Now, and they lived happily ever after, but we'd have to scratch out the rest of the chapter to believe that it gets a it goes bad right here and when they had come to the region of the Jordan which is in the land of Canaan so still in, in the promised land side of things the children of Reuben the children of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh they built an altar there by the Jordan a great impressive altar and apparently this altar that they built was a replica uh, of the altar that was uh, in Shiloh being used for the worship uh, of the Lord. And so they build this uh, gigantic uh, altar there. And, and uh, not the greatest idea in the world, but their heart was good, but it's going to be misunderstood. As they come to the Jordan River and they're about to cross over and go into their own land, they seem to be filled with a sense of, isolation from the other nine-and-a-half tribes and and uh, they had fought with them they had uh, doubtless formed very very deep relationships with uh, men in the other nine-and-a-half tribes now they're leaving them this river is going to be a barrier the Jordan River between them and they want this closeness of heart to the nine-and-a-half tribes to continue but They think to themselves as there's this physical separation between the two groups, they can see that how that over time, uh, this great camaraderie that they have with one another, this unity has the potential to be forgotten and that they'll kind of become the ch- stepchildren, so to speak, of, uh, uh, of, of the twelve tribes, that they'll be considered lesser by the other nine and a half tribes and maybe even ultimately uh, excluded from worshiping the Lord at all at the tabernacle. And so they built this great altar... For, to speak to the following generations uh, of the fact that, yes, these two and a half tribes are equal with the other nine and a half and, and that they are as, just as committed to the God of Israel and have just as much right to worship uh, the Lord in uh, Israel proper as the other nine and a half tribes. Now their fears were absolutely needless because God had already taken care of this in the law of Moses when God declared that every Jewish male, no matter where they were, certainly in the land, but even in the world itself, was to come to the city, uh, to the capital, or wherever the worship was going on, where the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle was, and ultimately the temple in, in Jerusalem, that every Jewish male, three times a year, were to come to that place and worship the Lord. So, the, the, the worship of the Lord at Shiloh and then ultimately in Jerusalem, the, everybody was used to Jews coming from all over the land and all over the world. So they weren't going to forget the fact that there were Jews not just living, there were Jews all over the world not just living in the land. But this was the fear that they had in, inside of them. And so this is why they, they built this uh, great altar. And surely it's a mistake, but it's an, it's an honest mistake. Now word of this gets out to the ch- children of Israel, the other nine and a half tribes. Notice how it happens. Now the children of Israel heard someone say. That's how it always happens. You never know who said it. It's someone who said. We don't know if it's Opie or Aunt B or Goober, or Andy. We don't know who it is. It's just the children of Israel heard someone say. Now, it's interesting that heard someone say... You see, the word someone is in italics, which means it's not there in the original manuscripts. It's been added by the translators in an attempt to bring some clarity for us so that the Bible would read smoothly. And, and, and it, it's very, very helpful that they, they've done that. But if you remove that someone out of there and you just l- look at what it says in the original, and the children of Israel heard say... They heard say. What does that sound like? (laughs) Hearsay. Which is always a dangerous thing. So these people are going to get very, very riled up in just a moment on the basis of some hearsay. So they hear this report. Somebody said, Behold, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh have built an altar on the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region of the Jordan uh, on the ch- uh, children of Israel's side. And so that's the report that comes out, and uh, they uh, hear about this. And when the children of Israel, verse 12, heard of it, here's their reaction, the whole congregation of the children of Israel gathered together at Shiloh to go to war against them. So we've got this civil war. that is. I mean, they've been fighting side by side for seven years. And we got a civil war that's just about to, to break out on the basis of some piece of hearsay that no one can trace back to its source. It would be funny if it weren't so common and it weren't so destructive among God's people even, even today. So their reaction is they gather all together, let's go kill somebody. <laughs> you know, let's go to war against our brethren. And that's what they're uh, about to do. So they believe the absolute worst about this report. Now, the fact that an altar had been built, that was a fact. Nothing wrong with that fact. But apparently what they do in their minds is they judge it beyond the fact that it has been built, and they assume the motivation for which it was built on the part of the two and a half tribes. And they assume that they have built this altar in order to engage in pagan idolatry, number one option, number two option, that they're looking to establish a separate place of the worship of Yahweh, of Jehovah, other than Shiloh, where God has prescribed that it would take place. So they got a fact. And as they receive this piece of information, their mind begins to blow out in all directions and they think the absolute worst of the two and a half tribes that they can possibly think. Now how many of you don't shout out, I'm dying to know. How many of you, when you get a piece of information on some kind of a thing that looks a little strange about another person, you don't think anything but the best. <laughs> and then how many of us are in this room, we get that piece of information, Then this dirty, stinking, filthy flesh? If we don't think the worst, we think close to it. I don't need any more information. You don't have to fill any blanks for me. It's obvious what they're thinking. Now, I don't know what you're... I don't know what your success rate is on judging. This is called judging, and Jesus prohibits it. He said, judge not that you be not judged. He did not mean that we are not to judge fruit or judge a person's actions. The Bible says we are to judge fruit. The Bible says we are to test the spirits. Uh, The Bible says that we are to judge situations that are unbiblical in a local church. We are to judge but what Jesus condemns is we are not to judge the heart or the motivation of the person. That's what we, we can't know. Only God knows the motivation of why a person does what they do. Only God knows their heart. So we can't do that. We don't have enough information. My track record for looking at a piece of information and then allowing my flesh to fill in the blanks and just look and say well it just absolutely has to be this of a failure rate of about 95%. And that's why Jesus says when we hit these things where somebody we find out about something number 1 we have to find out whether it's actually factual that's happened but let's say the altar has been built the only way we can know all of the facts concerning that situation is to go to the people who built the altar and ask them why they built the altar. They're the only ones that can reveal their motives and reveal their heart. Since we cannot know their heart, only God knows their heart just because of who He is, the only way we can know it is by talking to the person. And that's why Jesus said, if there's some kind of a problem between two of us in the body of Christ, somebody has sinned against us, we begin to think, how could they do that to us? And it must mean this. And we take and make a mountain out of a molehill, ascribe all of these motives. The next thing you want to do is go out and shoot him over it. Make the thing just gigantic. And the Lord says, no, don't do that. Go talk to him. And I'm telling you, about 95% of the time when you go talk to him, You're so glad you never said anything to anybody else because the situation is so innocent and so pure and what we thought they were doing and what they were about is so ugly and impure that we want to just keep it between ourselves and God. I'm not speaking for everyone in this room, but you know who I'm talking to. So this is what they do and they judge them, and now they want to go to war against them. I mean, that's, it's just crazy, but it goes on in churches all of the time. And then the children of Israel, they sent Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, to the children of Reuben, to the children of Gad, to half the tribe of Manasseh, into the land of Gilead. So cooler heads prevail and they send a delegation into, uh, to the two and a half tribes to find out what's going on and with him ten rulers, one ruler from each of the chief house of every tribe of Israel and each one was the head of the house of his father among the divisions of Israel. And so this delegation is sent And then they came to the children of Reuben, to the children of Gad, to half the tribe of Manasseh, to the land of Gilead, and they spoke with them saying, sounds a little bit like a lecture to me as I read it, (laughs) they don't come and say, what are you guys thinking? I mean, it must be pure. We fought with you guys for seven years and we know there must be a good explanation for this. Could you just tell us this so we don't have to kill you before we go home? And... uh, and so we know the whole thing they don't they come in and they just begin just this flow out of their mouth of accusations uh, against them and and god had said in his law uh, i think it's in the book of deuteronomy he said if you hear about um, someone introducing idolatry among my people then go ask questions find out the facts and then address the situation so they are at least obeying the law of Moses and doing this so this is the accusation they bring against them what treachery <laughs> right out of the gate what treachery is this so they accuse him of treachery is this this that you have committed against the God of Israel to turn away this day from following the Lord so they accuse him of apostasy in that you have built for yourselves an altar that you might rebel this day against the Lord. So in one sentence they've accused him of treachery, of apostasy, of rebellion. Is the iniquity of Peor not enough for us, from which we were not cleansed till this day, although there was a plague in the congregation of the Lord, but that you must turn away this day from following the Lord, and it shall be if you rebel today against the Lord that tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. And remember, uh, at Peor, that was the place where Balaam had given the counsel to Balak to bring the young Moabitess women among the children of Israel to in, in uh, become uh, sexually involved with them, have them bring out their false gods, begin to worship those false gods, and it would force God to judge His, his people. And as a result of, of that, a plague came on the children of Israel. 24,000 died. And the point that Phineas is making with this delegation is, don't you realize that if you sin, God isn't just going to judge you, but He's going to judge the whole, the whole people of, of God. So he's giving him kind of a history lesson. Nevertheless, if the land of your possession is unclean, then cross over to the land of the possession of the Lord. Listen, if you can't stay spiritual, going on the other side of the Jordan, come back into the land here, and and we'll give you a, a portion from our portion, where the Lord's tabernacle is, and take possession among us. But do not rebel against the Lord, nor rebel against us, by building yourselves an altar beside besides the altar of the Lord our God. And then they bring up Achan as an example of how one man's sin had a detrimental effect upon the whole nation and and they suffered defeat as a result of it at Ai. Did not Achan the son of uh, Zerah commit a trespass in the accursed thing and wrath fell on all the congregation of Israel and that man did not perish alone in his iniquity. Thirty-six men died as a result of his sin. So this is the speech that they give. Apparently... There's a pause for breath here. And then the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh answered and said to the heads of the divisions of Israel, The Lord God of gods, the Lord God of gods, they are stunned at the accusation that's been leveled against them, that they are dealing uh, treacherously, that they are engaged in apostasy, that they are now being rebellious against God. None of that was true, and now this thing is thrown in their face. If you've ever been in their place, it's not a comfortable situation. This whole thing that they've worked up in their minds and they throw in their face, they just they're stunned that anyone could think that of, of their actions. And so they call God as a witness of it. He knows, and let Israel itself know if it is. "...in rebellion or if in treachery against the Lord, don't save us this day." If we're being apostates, rebellious, treacherous, then do what the law of God says, wipe us out. But that's not what's happening here. If we have built ourselves an altar to turn from following the Lord, or if to offer on it burnt offerings or grain offerings... Or if to offer peace offerings on it, let the Lord Himself require an account. If we built this to take the place of the tabernacle and the altar in Shiloh, then let the Lord judge us. But in fact, if you want to know the facts, gentlemen, we have done it for fear. Never a good reason. For a reason we've done it, saying, in time to come, your descendants may speak to our descendants, saying, What is Have you to do with the Lord God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a border between you and us. Your children, you children of Reuben and the children of Gad, you have no part in the Lord, and so your descendants would make our descendants cease fearing the Lord. And so again, they fear that over time they would become the forgotten or ostracized among the tribes of, of Israel, even prevented com- from coming to worship the Lord at the tabernacle. And so, driven by this, it was an irrational fear. They, they therefore, we said, Let us now prepare to build ourselves an altar, not for burnt offering nor for sacrifice, But that it may be a witness between you and us and our generations after us, that we may perform the service of the Lord before Him with our burnt offerings, with our sacrifices, excuse me, with our peace offering, and that your descendants may not say to our descendants in time to come, You have no part, excuse me, in the Lord. And so He said, We built this so that when the day came that this altar would be a witness of the fact that we have equal access to the Lord and the things of the Lord as the other nine and a half tribes. And therefore we said that it will be, when they say this to us or to our generations in time to come that we may say here is a replica of the altar of the Lord which our fathers made though not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifices but it is a witness between you and us far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and so they begin to knock down the false judgment that's been brought against them This is not rebellion against the Lord. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn from following the, the Lord this day to build an altar for burnt offerings, for grain offerings, for sacrifices, besides the altar of the Lord our God, which is before the tabernacle. So they flatly deny the charges. Now when Phineas the priest and the rulers of the congregation, the heads of the divisions of Israel who were with him, They heard the words that the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the children of Manasseh spoke. It pleased them. Why didn't you say so? Hmm. So they looked at it and said, all right, we've misjudged this. And the explanation is satisfactory. And then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, the children of Manasseh, this day we perceive that the Lord is among us, because you have not committed this treachery against the Lord. Now you have delivered the children of Israel out of the hand of the Lord. An apology might have been nice also, but they didn't get that. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and the rulers returned from the children of Reuben and the children of Gad, from the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, to the children of Israel. And brought back word to them. Told them the whole thing. It's a misunderstanding. This is what's in their hearts. All you got to do is just go and talk to them. And then you find out. So this thing is completely clean. And so the thing pleased the children of Israel. And the children of Israel blessed God. They were thankful that there wasn't going to be any kind of judgment or violence because of this. They spoke no more. <clears throat> They spoke no more of going against them in battle to destroy the land where the children of Reuben and Gad dwelt. The children of Reuben and the children of Gad called the altar witness, for it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. So they they named it as, as what was in their heart, that this would be a testimony to the nine and a half tribes that we love God as much as you do, that we want to have the equal access that you have, and we want that to be respected in the generations that would follow. Chapter 22 is a very important chapter in the body of Christ, and I'm not going to go on about it at length. But I think all you need to do is be a Christian for a little while to realize... How much damage is done with this kind of thing? Violation of Jesus' command not to judge motives or hearts, and then a failure to go to the person that, that there's a the temptation to misjudge the situation and simply ask them what's going on, and most often it's cleared up. I think the whole, where this whole thing happens is very interesting in the book of Joshua. You look at what these, all these 12 tribes have been through. I mean, they've been through seven years of war together. They have broken the back of every enemy that came against them. Entire confederations of kings in the south, in the north, they defeated them readily. Nothing could stop them. And then God takes it, I think, in one chapter, points and says, listen, no enemy can wipe you out, but you people can wipe yourselves out if you're not careful in this area. And I think that as we partake of, of the Lord's Supper tonight, the symbol of Jesus' body and the symbol of His, his shed blood for us tonight,